I was just doing some personal reading one night um, several weeks ago, and um, I, I decided to read through Philemon. I've read through it before in college, but it's been years. And um, as I opened this book, I was just taken back by the beauty of this passage. And it is not taught on very often. So it's a privilege. Uh, I really feel honored to be able to get to go through this text with you guys. Um, and so thank you for giving me the opportunity. And I, I just really think this is such a rich um, what has been called by many biblical scholars a gospel in miniature. And we're going to really see the, the meat of the letter and what Paul is working towards in an ask to Philemon um, in, in our text tonight. So before we continue, would you pray with me? Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that tonight you are faithful to, to meet with us, God. Thank you that you are in this place Thank you that your presence is here and that we are able to commune with you because you've bridged the gap between us and you, a holy, worthy, righteous God because of the cross. And tonight, as we have an opportunity to know you more, to grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ, I pray that your Holy Spirit would convict where conviction is needed. It would encourage, Lord, where encouragement is needed. And Lord, for anything that might apply to us tonight, um, any areas where we need to repent um, where we need to make things right, God, may you speak those things to us so clearly, and may we, may we leave this place better because we've spent time in your presence. And so we ask for your holy word to do what only it can do, and we thank you for your faithfulness to answer these prayers. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Would you stand with me as we read together? And I think for the sake of those who maybe weren't here last week, let's just read it in its entirety again. And I think there'll be, that'll be just as beneficial. And, and it's only 25 verses, so you won't be standing too long. This is Paul writing to Philemon. He says, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother. To Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Epipha, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, and that's to Philemon, because I hear of your love and the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. That was our key verse last week, refreshing the saints. Verse 8, accordingly, and now we get into tonight's text, and this is where things will get interesting for Philemon, who's reading this letter from Paul. You could say, therefore, or accordingly, or with this in mind, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man now, a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I have become in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. And I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. No longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant as a beloved brother, especially to me, 
but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord? Verse 17. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If, I, if he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. To say nothing of your owing me even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write this to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I'm hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you also, and so to Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. You can have a seat. You know, I have been thinking and studying through this text for the last few days, and as I looked at the text, I, I suppose that titles of sermons don't necessarily bear a ton of weight, and in the eternal scheme of things, they're probably not of that much importance, but the title that I felt like the Lord kept impressing upon my heart was A Beloved Brother. And tonight, as we look at this this now, this ask that Paul makes before Philemon. He says in verse 8, Although I am bold enough to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. You know, there's nothing like the bond between brothers. I have two brothers, and um, there's something unique about a relationship between me and James and Nathan. There's, there's something that is special because it's, it's a bond that you don't have with many people. And sure, brother relationships, they can, they can be with people who are not you know, flesh and blood, but there's something unique that God has, has crafted in his design with those who share flesh and blood. And there's a bond between brothers that, that is something that can't be replaced. You know, I... I would say after my wife, my brothers are my closest friends. They, they know me the best. They've known me the longest. And they've seen my, my greatest accomplishments and my highest moments and my greatest feats and the good things about me. And yet they also have seen my lowest lows and the worst things about my sinful humanity and my worst moments when I've said things that I wish I could go back and not have said. And this brotherhood that, that God has designed is a unique bond. And I suppose that, you know, I would love to say with full confidence that I would do anything for my brothers. And I, I do believe that I would do anything for them. Because there's just a bond between your siblings that you have that even if there's been uh, division and, and struggle, and, and trust me, my brothers and I have had our fair share of struggles along the way, like any good set of brothers. Um, we've had our scraps. You know, James and Nathan are closer in age, so I'm the oldest of three boys, and I'm four and a half or so years older than the next one, and that's Nathan. And then James and Nathan are only 18 months apart. So they had the luxury of, uh, well, I should say I had the luxury of them sharing a room their whole life, 
and I had my own room my whole life. Um, but there are also cons to being the oldest sibling. If there's any oldest siblings in the room, you can attest, amen, yeah? We got one older sibling in the room, just a few. Okay, so I got a few people in my camp, and you know how it goes. Uh, you're kind of the trial uh, for everything, um, you also usually take the blame for just about everything. <laughs> I can recall many times uh, through my childhood where I was in the midst of breaking up a scrap between James and Nathan, and it just so happens that when I'm wringing Nathan's neck to tell him to stop beating up James, that's when dad walks in the room and says, Shane, what are you doing? You know, and it's like, no, I, I, dad, you, no, you know. And in spite of all those things and all the disagreements and the the few fist fights maybe over the years and things like that, that that boys do when you're all trying to figure out life and everybody's insecure but they don't want to say it so they just punch each other, which is always a good way to handle situations. Not at all. But through those, those ups and downs, there's just something about a relationship between brothers that can't be replaced. And it's been said that brothers may not always be eye to eye, but they will always be heart to heart. And tonight we look at a picture of brotherhood. And we look at a call from the Apostle Paul to a righteous, godly man who's leading a church and is active in his faith. And he's making a bold ask before Philemon. And the challenge in our text tonight is that we can apply the same ask to us right now in 2022, thousands of years later. You and I can look at this text and say, am I loving people the way that Christ has called me to love? Because the common denominator and the thing that binds a, a, an ex-Pharisee and re, a man of religiosity who was judgmental and hated Christians and now has been changed for the gospel. He was Saul and now he's Paul. And then you have a Gentile slave and you have a wealthy Roman. The thing that unites all of them is Jesus Christ. That's the common bond that they share. And when we come into this place tonight, we all represent different styles of life, different backgrounds, different mistakes, but none of it matters because it all checks at the door because the common denominator, the bond that you and I ought to have is Jesus. And so the differences that we bring to the table become irrelevant because the scripture makes it clear that you and I have been reconciled to each other. You see, this is the problem with modern thinking and critical thinking and critical race theory that questions that reconciliation. Friend, critical race theory is irrelevant, and here's why. The Bible teaches very clearly that you and I have already been reconciled to each other. It's not about politics. It's not about our opinions. I look at the text of Scripture in its proper context, in the author's intent, and I see that you and I Despite our backgrounds, our different ethnicities, races, opinions, the thing that reconciles you and I to each other is Jesus. And so we don't need new ways of thinking. We need to get back to the simple gospel. And tonight, as we look at this text, it would be easy for us to look at Philemon and just expect him to do the right thing. But I, I challenge you tonight as we look at the text that you put yourself in Philemon's shoes. Onesimus has wronged you. He stole from you. We don't know exactly what he did, but we know he probably stole something. But there was some sort of falling out between this household slave, Onesimus, to his master, Philemon. And Paul is now saying, I need you to take him back. Not 
not because you're obligated to or because out of, out of compulsion, but because it is what you should do as a Christian. It's a bold ask. And, you know, I think that there's a, a strong lesson from the Apostle Paul intact. I heard Alistair Begg teaching on this passage, and I did make the mistake of making the font in my notes much too small for my eyes. So give me a moment so I can make it bigger so I can actually read my notes. But I heard Alistair Begg talking on this idea. And he said, you know, I think that the Apostle Paul really gives us a lesson intact. And maybe some of, some of us need a lesson intact tonight and how we approach conversations and different engagements in life. Alistair Begg says this, commenting on this section, Paul gives us a master class on tact, a lesson on tact, particularly to those of us who, while trying to influence others, display all the gentility of a bull in a china shop. Some of us have great things to say and a very poor way of saying it. Growing up, many of you may have heard this from your parents probably more than once. Son or daughter, it's not what you said so much as how you said it. And now if you have kids of your own, you start to realize, see, what they said is not really the issue that I have, but it's the tone, right? That was what my mom used to say to me, watch your tone, right? And many of us, in different situations where maybe even the Lord is prompting us to speak a truth into somebody's life or to be an example or to disciple someone, we burn bridges not because of the message we desire to convey, but because of the way in which we convey it. And Paul gives us a lesson, or as Alistair says so eloquently, a masterclass intact in how he approaches this ask, because this is a sensitive situation. Because by Roman law, Philemon has every right to, per, to uh, press charges against Onesimus for what he's done. And according to Roman law, a runaway slave could be killed for what he's done. And Paul is not only asking him to forgive him, but to then take him in as one of his own. That's the language in the text. Paul is saying, I want you to take Onesimus back, but not as a slave anymore. I want you to take him back as one of your own children. I want you to let him dine at your table with you and be a part of your family. It's a, it's a tall order that I think each one of us in our humanity and in our flesh we would struggle with. And there's a clear desire from Paul to be gracious, to be theological, and he keeps Christ at the center. He's not being manipulative or uh, appealing to him uh, from some sort of fleshly manner. No, he's, he's appealing to him in love and in Christ. And he's saying, look, he's your brother in Jesus. So take him back. Forgive him. So I believe careful consideration in how we say things is not only wise, but oftentimes will yield a better result. Amen? And this is true of those who are young and old. And some of us, maybe with some more gray hair on our head, say, well, you know, my son, he always is disrespectful. And you might be right. But the question that you have to ask is, well, how do I speak to my son? Do you owe your son respect? I don't know. That's a debatable thing. 
I don't know if there's a scripture that says, fathers respect your sons, but there are scriptures that certainly say, fathers don't provoke your son to anger. Do you do that? Do you do that in different relationships? Because what Paul is saying is, we are to deal with each other in love. So again, let's review verse eight and nine. He says, therefore, or accordingly, though I am bold enough to command you, I am the apostle Paul, is what he's saying. I am Paul, the apostle. But we talked about that last week, that Paul doesn't have to remind anybody of his status. No, in humility, he says, a fellow prisoner, I could command you to do what's required, Yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you or to ask you. I, Paul, an old man, a prisoner for Christ Jesus. You can almost sense Paul is trying to just be down to earth with Philemon and say, look, man, I'm tired. I'm old. He says, I'm old. How many of you say that? Some of you remind me all the time, I'm getting old. My dad always tells me, don't get old. It stinks getting old. Sometimes I'm doing a, a class in the mornings and it's like a fitness thing and there's a guy in there, he's 67 years old. And sometimes I wanna quit on my workout and I look over it, I call him Crazy Dave and he's still going. And I think to myself, I have to shut up and just keep going because he is 67 and he's still going. And then he says, it sucks getting old, man. And Paul, I can kind of sense that in him as he's writing this letter. He's, it's so down to earth and just, Personal. This is the most personal text you're going to see from the Apostle Paul in the New Testament. From just one Christian, one brother to another, he's saying, look, man, I'm tired, I'm old, I'm in, I'm in chains for Christ. I could command you, but I'd rather just ask you. Just do what's right. Because Philemon knows. He knows what's right. And how often do you and I look at a situation in our life and we know what we ought to do, but doing it is a very different thing. Amen? I can look at situations in my life and say, I know how I ought to handle that. I can look at a disagreement with my spouse and say, I know how I ought to speak to her. I know how I ought to respect my husband. I know how I ought to love my wife. But doing it is a different thing. I know I ought to take better care of my body and eat better, but doing it is a different thing because at midnight when you're hungry, the healthy places are closed. It's hard to be healthy. And Del Taco's open 24 hours a day. It's a challenge. But what I love about the Apostle Paul is that he, he, he lives out the things that he preaches. Because as he writes in Colossians, he says, love one another. Look, he could have just ignored Onesimus when he showed up and asked Paul for help. All we can tell from the, the text, because we have to fill in some blanks, is that more than likely, it's not an uncommon practice at this time, if a slave was in trouble or in division between him and his master, he would often go to an, a, a neutral third party and would ask for a plea on their behalf. And so what we are gathering is that more than likely, Onesimus goes to Paul because he knows that he knows Philemon, and he says, Paul, hey, you have good rapport with Philemon and the church in Colossae there. Can you help me? Because I really messed up, and I need someone to bail me out. Paul could have easily said, 
I don't have time for this. I'm an old man. I'm tired. I'm, in ho- I'm on house arrest right now. I don't have time for this. But instead, what we see in the text is that it could have been years that Paul has been pouring in to Onesimus and discipling him in the ways of Christ. He takes a young man under his wing who needs refuge, who needs help, and who needs discipleship. And he does what he preaches. See, even beyond words, I think that more often than not, people could care less, uh, couldn't care less so much about what you have to say. They want to see what you will do. I believe that the people I have the most respect for in my life are people that not only can talk the talk, but they walk the walk. There's a consistency between the things that they say and the way that they live their life. In fact, in 1 John 4, 8, it says, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Is there a gray area in that scripture? (laughs) No, It's very black and white. If you do not love, then you do not know God. And all of us want to look at that and say, I'm looking for loopholes. But John makes it abundantly clear. If you love God, you will love each other. It sounds easy until you have to do it. It's been said many times, I've been on staff here for a decade now, and we often joke in staff meetings, ministry would be really easy without people. (laughs) That's what we talk about in our staff meetings. No, I'm kidding. But it's true, because people are difficult. People have issues, problems, and then the group sitting in there talking about it is a group of people with different opinions about everything. We have to limit who's in each meeting or it'll just keep going. Some of you experience this in the corporate professional business world. You just know Rob's not in this meeting because if Rob's in this meeting, we're not gonna ever get out of here, right? There's always that guy that's got an opinion on everything. And it is so much easier to talk about these principles of Christianity, fundamental things of our faith, but it is another thing to apply them and walk in them Turn with me to Mark chapter 12. So turn to your left a little bit back in your New Testament. You have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's the second book of the New Testament. Mark chapter 12. If we could get these verses on the screen, if there's anybody back there. Mark chapter 12. I'll give you a moment to get there. Mark chapter 12. We're going to go to verse 28. In the context of this scripture... We see Jesus in Jerusalem, and over and over again, he's been challenged by the religious leaders and the Pharisees, and they're just trying to entrap Jesus somehow. You know, I heard a pastor the other day say, it's always interesting how people followed Jesus around, but they didn't like him, but they followed him everywhere he went. You know, you could just see the the Pharisees and the the Sadducees and the religious leaders. Jesus comes into town, and they're all like, Oh, what is he doing now? You know? And he said, it's the same thing today. He was a pastor on social media. He said, people follow me and they comment on all my videos telling me how much they don't like me, but they're following me. And people do it. People never change. And here's the religious leaders. They're following Jesus everywhere, but they can't stand him. But they're still following him everywhere he goes, listening to his teachings. 
That'd be like showing up to a church every Sunday and you don't like the pastor or the worship team, but you come every week and complain about it every week. Go somewhere else. It doesn't make any sense. And so these guys are following Jesus around, always trying to catch him in his words, trying to catch him in some sort of, you know, what they would call uh, heresy or blasphemy. And it says in verse 28, Jesus has been debating, and it says that one of the scribes overheard what was going on in verse 28 of Mark chapter 12. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, that is, Jesus answered them well, because he always answers well, he will never lose one of these arguments, the scribe asked him, Jesus, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. This is the words of Jesus Christ. And he says, the second most important thing for you as a Christian, a command from God, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. Oh, that's nice. You can imagine the humility that it must take for Jesus to be like, oh, thank you. Ha, ha. I'm glad that you have approved of what I've just said. I am God. But he doesn't do that. I would have said that, but I'm not God. And we'd have no hope if I was Jesus. So thank you, Lord. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other beside him. And to love him with all your heart and with all understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than the, all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Notice that. This scribe is wise enough to know that all the burnt offerings mean nothing comparatively to these commands. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, notice this, Jesus talking. And I, I gather from the, the, the way this text unfolds that this scribe is genuine in what he's saying. Jesus says to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. I just, oh, this, this text just brings you into this interaction can you see it? Jesus is sitting, debating, and the Pharisees are trying so hard to entrap him in his words. And Jesus, so eloquent and so full of love and peace and composed, clothed in humility. Maybe this scribe, a part of him wanted to entrap Jesus in something. But as Jesus begins to speak, have you ever noticed when Jesus' words begin to flow, something changes? And maybe for a moment, this scribe sought to try to entrap Jesus, but as he begins to speak, his heart is softened, and you can see the Lord in such kindness and gentleness say, friend, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And I love this, how it ends. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. <laughs> it's so satisfying. They were like, all right, we can't get this guy. Let's forget it. And then they keep trying later. They keep following him. Turn back to our passage in Philemon. So Jesus, our Lord, if you are a Christian, you are indeed, by definition, a Christ follower. That guy, who is God, says that 
you are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second greatest commandment is that you should love one another. Love your neighbor. And we know from other times in the New Testament in Jesus' earthly ministry, who is your neighbor? The person that you hate the most. Because when Jesus is talking to the lawyer who's an expert in religious law, in religion, which is not what you should be an expert in today, because this is not a religion, trying to figure out where Jesus is at, well, who is my neighbor? And Jesus says, the Samaritan that you hate is your neighbor. Love him as you love yourself. Hmm. Jesus didn't say, oh, your brothers, the people that you get along with the best, if you love them, you're good. <laughs> That'd be great, wouldn't it? But that's not what he said. No, the Lord looked at the lawyer and said, the Samaritan is your neighbor. That's who you're called to love. And so we look at our text in Philemon and we see a man asked to love the very man that stabbed him in the back, that betrayed him. And it's very possible that Onesimus is known throughout the city there in Colossae. People know what's happened. Maybe there was some drama, you know. The women gather for their, their morning coffee. Oh, did you hear? Did you hear what, what happened with Philemon and Onesimus? The men are like, I can't believe Onesimus. Do you hear what he did? Yeah, he stole, stole a bunch of jewelry and just took off. You know, they're all talking about it. I don't know why they're all talking like, oh yeah, I don't know. But they're talking. They're probably talking. People know what happened. And what's even more interesting is that most biblical scholars agree that this letter is read for the first time in front of the whole church. Can you imagine being a pastor, being Pastor Philemon, and you're in your church, and the congregation's gathered, and you're like, guys, we got a letter from Paul. People are like, woo! And Philemon's up there, and he's like, oh, man, he's so happy with us, guys. He's, he's praising us for just being faithful and being good ambassadors for the kingdom of God. And Onesimus, oh, uh, hold on. Can you imagine Philemon? He's like, wait, what? And you have to be thinking, if you're Philemon in this situation, you have to be thinking to yourself, how in the world does Paul know Onesimus? How does he know him? What is going on? Onesimus, how do you know him? No, 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 that guy owes me a lot of money. And, you know, I just, I just imagine that there is some strategy in this. Now, it is even more interesting when you get into different opinions on how the letter is delivered. Now, this is just conjecture, but for the sake of exploring it, it's very possible that Epaphras might be the one who's delivering these letters, but it's possible that Paul sends Onesimus back with the letter. Now, can you imagine being Onesimus and you show up and you're like, hey, Philemon, <laughs> yeah, it's been a minute. Hey, this is from the Apostle Paul. I may or may not be in there. Now, another school of thought is that Epaphras delivers the letters to both the church in Colossae and to Philemon, and he tells Onesimus to hang out 
maybe in a nearby town so that he doesn't get killed on the way there. And this is probably more likely, uh, but it's just interesting to think about. So Epaphras delivers the letters and uh, Philemon, uh, uh, excuse me, Onesimus, there's a lot of names going on. Onesimus stays back and he now waits for the verdict and for the decision. He's gotta be anxious as he's waiting. And so Philemon reading the letter, Paul says in verse nine, I could command you, but for love's sake, I prefer to ask you or to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner. Some argue that maybe the word that Paul used here instead of prisoner may have been an ambassador for Jesus. Both applicable, both work. And so you can imagine Philemon reading this in front of the congregation. And in verse 10, this is where this is where it gets real. Paul says, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Now, he says, formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. And some of you would read that at face value and say, wow, that was, that was harsh. Well, it's a play on words because Onesimus' name means useful in Greek. That's what his name means. And he's been rather useless up until this point because he stole and ran away. So Paul uses, this is a pun or a play on words. He's not actually calling Onesimus useless. But he is making a point that now he is a new creation. He's a Christian now. He's your brother in Christ. And so he says, I could command you, but instead I ask you, Onesimus, who I have become like a father to, Paul uses this type of language as he talks about Timothy as well. And, you know, something I love about Paul is that he was intentional about the young men that were around him in his life. And he desired to take young men under his wing and train them up in the knowledge of the gospel, in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And he equipped the saints and he built future leaders for the church. And that's a call on each one of our lives, that we would be taking in people who are younger than us and, and saying, hey, and maybe not younger in age necessarily, but just in the faith, and we would say, let me, let me help you. Let me walk alongside you as we do life together. And so, in many ways, this is a prodigal son story. And now Philemon, the ball is in his court, if you will. And so he has to make a decision. Can you imagine, though, if he read it in front of the entire congregation, and now you can kind of almost hear it. Like, he reads, uh, I've become like a father to Onesimus, and you can almost hear, like, the murmur in the, in the crowd. Like, oh, oh, my gosh, that's, that's the guy. You can hear the drama stirring. Maybe an audible, <gasps> Right? I remember years ago, I was leading worship and I wear contacts sometimes and more often than not. And I had a contact fall out of my eye while I was leading worship. And we have lyrics in the back of the room and I'm like, I can't see. And I'm supposed to lead these people in these words and I can't see them. So the song ended and some of you who have been around Living Truth for a while might remember this moment, but I, I leaned down and I picked up the contact and I just put it right back in my eye. And there was an audible, <gasps> you know, the crowd just like, the, the congregation just couldn't believe it. They were like, oh no, 
You know, I've been wearing contacts most of my life, so it didn't really faze me. But my grandma is very much a germaphobe and a, a neat freak, and she nearly had a heart attack in the front row. No, Shane, what are you doing, you know? An audible gasp, maybe, amidst the congregation as the letter is read aloud. And so Paul says in verse 12, now the... the the news is out, right? The cat's out of the bag. Not that Paul was being manipulative, but he was waiting for the right time in the letter to say, okay, you're doing all these things well, and now I need you to do this. Take Onesimus back. And he says, I am sending him back to you. So now people are reading the letter, and I wonder if they're thinking, is he here? Is he in town? Is he back? And from what we know, he's back. But what does Paul say? He says, I'm sending him back to you, sending my very heart. And you can tell there's this deep bond that he's built, this relationship with Onesimus. And he says, I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But Paul, practicing what he preaches, lays aside what he would like in this situation. And he says, I'm gonna send him back to you. Receive him because I want you to, not because you have to. Because you want to, not because you have to. See, when Christ calls you to love one another, to love your neighbor, it's not because you have to so much as it's because he wants you to. And you might say, well, I don't want to. Well, then your desires are not yet aligned with Christ. And so you need to trade your old man, the old way of doing things, and the fleshly desires for the desires of Jesus. If you are struggling to love someone, to forgive someone tonight, you must surrender that to the Lord. You can't do it on your own, friend. You've probably been trying for a long, long time. And you will never find it in your own gusto, in your own strength, the ability to muster the courage to forgive them truly. I believe outside of Jesus, there is no such thing as true forgiveness. The world's level and idea and, I, and, and way of forgiving is incomplete without Christ. And so you can say, no, I've forgiven them. And how many of you have done this? We've all done it, I've done it. I forgive you, we're cool. And then an hour later, you're still talking about what happened because you haven't forgiven them. No, bitterness has been building in your heart. And you've given some of you in this room Satan a foothold for years because you are unwilling to surrender that thing. And it's pride. And you say, it's not pride. No, friend, it's pride. Because if you really believe that Christ can heal even the worst of the worst, the worst situations, then you will surrender that thing and stop trying to do it on your own. Forgiveness is key. I've done multiple weddings, and I've said at those weddings um, words that I've heard from my own father doing weddings, who said to me at my own wedding when I stood in front of my bride, unforgiveness will always keep your marriage uh, at a standstill or hold you back. Forgiveness will always move your marriage forward. And that principle is applicable to every relationship in your life and in my life. Forgiveness will always move things forward. Unforgiveness, bitterness, resentment will always, always move things backwards. 
And so maybe for you tonight, you need to finally surrender whatever it may be before the Lord Jesus and say, God, I need you to work in me so that I can forgive. Because you have been given a great forgiveness. I have received great forgiveness. Forgiveness like the world has never seen. The world can't offer. Because the scripture says that your sins and my sins when we've repented and called on the Lord Jesus are as far as the east is from the west, cast into the deepest part of the sea. That means that the Lord has forgiven you and then chose to forget. He's chosen to forget what you've done. Though he could remember forever, he chooses to forget your sins and forgive. And that forgiveness is the only reason that you and I can stand tonight and have confidence and move forward and have hope in this life because of the forgiveness that we have received. And so far be it from us to not be people who forgive and seek reconciliation. And if there was a theme of this book, of this letter, it is the idea of forgiveness and reconciliation. By by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. That's John 13, 35. Philippians 2, 3 through 4 says, Do nothing, nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more important, more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not look to his own desires and interests only, but also to the interests of others. And you know who exemplified that perfectly? Jesus. Jesus lived his life always looking to the needs of others. And it's refreshing when you meet people like that, isn't it? When you meet people who are more concerned about people around them than themselves. And you know what also happens when you're not self-absorbed? You find freedom. There is freedom when you're not hyper-focused on self. And if you have... Uh, matured in your faith and you found this to be true, you know the freedom that comes with not being so consumed with self. And it is something that uh, takes a daily surrendering. Every morning when you wake up, you have to ask God to help you die to self. Amen? And so we have to allow the Holy Spirit to change us, to control the way that we conduct ourselves, the way that we speak, the way that we handle division in different situations like this that are so difficult. Verse 14, but I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but out of your own accord. See, Paul is saying, I don't want you to do it out of obligation. I want you to do it because it's what you should do out of love for Christ. And then he says in 15, for this perhaps is why Onesimus parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. I appreciate that Paul is willing to say perhaps, This was an interesting um, side note that I saw pointed out, that Paul doesn't have to be emphatic about it. Maybe some of us are too quick to be emphatic. I've been in ministry for a long time, like I said, and uh, there have been many times where somebody comes up uh, after a service and they come to the stage and they want to tell me exactly why God did what he did. And I'm like, maybe, (laughs) but I don't know. I'm not God and I don't have a glimpse into the eternal. Maybe that's why God allowed that thing to happen. So just a word to the wise, we ought to really be careful when we speak emphatically, unless it is a black and white thing in scripture. 
And I also want to point this out. Paul doesn't hit him with the Romans 8.28. You know what I'm saying? Hey, man, I know Onesimus really wronged you, but, you know, the Lord works all things together for good, brother. Amen? Sometimes that's not what you need to say. They know that. And sometimes when you're in the midst of a really frustrating situation, the last thing you want is somebody to be like, hey, well, you know what I mean, brother? Romans 8.28. God works all things together. Sometimes you're like, hey, can you shut up? I don't want to hear that right now. I'm really angry. Now, that person is right, but timing is key. (laughs) And Alistair Begg pointed that out, and I thought that was worth noting. He doesn't shove scripture down Onesimus' Philemon's throat. No, Philemon knows. He knows what he needs to do. And that's what Paul is expecting from him. I know that you know the right thing to do. So here I am, the Apostle Paul, and I am saying, hey, do the right thing. From one brother to another, from one Christian to another, do the right thing. Forgive him and take him back. And I've made that mistake many times, maybe slapping a scripture on somebody when what they really need is just an ear to hear. And if you're married, you know this. (laughs) All the women are like, are you listening? You know? (laughs) Because we want to fix it, guys, right? We want to fix the problem. Who said what? I'm going down there right now. And I have a daughter now, and I, I would just say, if there are any young men in about 18 years watching this, just don't. Just don't even, okay? Because I own a lot of guns, and also just, that's my baby girl, and so don't even, okay? I'm going to be, re- it's going to be tough, okay? Mom's going to have to handle the date nights, because I'm going to kill somebody. Uh, and I, you know, those of you who have daughters, and I know I'm married, and I, I married somebody's daughter, so thank you, Husto, for putting up with me, but I just can't even imagine. I wanted sons for this reason. I'm glad I have a daughter. It's the greatest thing, but it is terrifying. And it's just, it's one of these things that oftentimes we want to fix the situation. Maybe it's outside of a marriage. You just want to fix it. But sometimes maybe you just are the shoulder to, to cry on. Maybe you're just the ear to hear. And when the Holy Spirit presents the opportunity, then maybe that's the time for you to speak truth into somebody's life. But sometimes maybe we need to be, you remember that? We need to be quick to listen and slow to speak. And I think it's key that Paul takes a moment to work uh, through this letter and he encourages Philemon first and then he approaches the difficult subject and says, look, brother, take Onesimus back. Oh, how different the church would look if every word that we said was filtered through the Holy Spirit first. How different our lives would look. How different the Explore page on Instagram when I see other pastors speaking would look. Because sometimes I hear things said and I'm like, oh no, that's not, that's not what that scripture means. That scripture's not about you, friend. You're not David. Just so you know, you're not David. In the story of David and Goliath, you're not slaying giants, friend. You're the Israelite army hiding in the background. (laughs) I heard a pastor talking about how we're not David. Jesus is David. Jesus slays the the giants. We're the Israelites cowering in the background. (laughs) And so sometimes we just need to think about what we say. Amen? Verse 16, this is our last verse for tonight. I would encourage you to hang out for a minute because we still got another passage to go through. No longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you? He says, he is your brother 
in Christ. And so take him back, not as a slave anymore, but as what? A brother. A brother. And I wonder, I wonder if more of us viewed the people sitting in this room and the people in our lives who share the faith, if we viewed each other as siblings, as, as adopted into the family of God, level ground before the cross, how much differently we would respond in situations and we would handle disagreements with each other and differences of opinion. And I've watched my fair share of uh, disagreements unfold in the walls of the church. And it's really a sad narrative when that happens. Because we need to get back to the basic principles that unite you and I, which is Jesus Christ. The hope that we have in a God who is worthy Though we are unworthy, he's made us righteous through his blood. John Calvin says this. It's in Old English, but hear this, it's so good. It would be a sign of haughty pride if we should be ashamed to count our brother as, uh, ashamed to count as our brother those whom God has made his sons. Let me read that again. It would be a sign of haughty pride if we should be ashamed to count as our brothers those whom God has made his sons. Some of us need to refocus and we need to start viewing people through the, the view that Christ sees them as family. And let's be honest, the church is riddled with pride and haughtiness and facades And prideful men and women have done a lot of damage to the church. And so the call for us tonight is to lay aside our pride and to be grounded on these fundamental principles that unite us, on the person of Jesus Christ that unites us. And an interesting thing that is worth noting is that when these principles are applied correctly and in truth, the idea of slavery becomes unacceptable for you as a Christian. Amen? Slavery no longer is in line with the Bible when you begin to look at these fundamental Christian principles about how we are created equal. We all stand condemned without Jesus. And Paul says in another passage, brothers, we ought not to think too highly of ourselves. But what Paul is asking is not just rare, it's unheard of. That Onesimus would be taken back, not just as a slave again, but as a brother, as a family member. Would you turn with me as we close tonight to one of my favorite passages in Scripture in 2 Samuel chapter 9. 2 Samuel chapter 9. This is probably one of my favorite accounts in the Bible. 2 Samuel 9. To give you some background, Jonathan has died. Saul has died. And David has taken over as king of Israel. And there's this story back in chapter 4, in 2 Samuel 4.4, And we know that 
Jonathan had a son named Mephibosheth. It's an interesting name. And I heard uh, somebody who I greatly respect, uh, John Mark McMillan, he's a singer and songwriter, and he was sharing this story, and he said, I believe Mephibosheth would be more popular if it was a more brandable name. <laughs> he said, but it's hard to put Mephibosheth in children's books. But we know that Mephibosheth was lame in both of his feet. And what happened, and we know this from 2 Samuel chapter 4, if you turn uh, one or two pages over real quick with me, in 2 Samuel chapter 4, look at verse 4. It says, Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet, and he was five years old when the news of Saul and Jonathan came from uh, Jezreel. And his nurse, in a panic, took him and fled. And as she fled, in her haste, he fell and became lame. And his name was Mephibosheth. Now jump back to chapter 9. So the dynasty is changing, and those who are part of the king's people who are now conquered are in trouble. The way that things usually worked is if you were a part of the old regime, you were wiped out, you were killed, you were slaughtered, because you are enemy to the new king. And so David is now in control, and he says, 2 Samuel 9, verse 9, David said, is there anyone left in the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant in the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David, and the king said to him, are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show kindness to God, uh, the kindness of God to him? And Ziba said to the king, there is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. This is Mephibosheth. The king said to him, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, he is in the house of Mekur, the son of Emil at Lodibar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, or Machir, I don't know how you say that, and the son of Emil at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, uh, son of Saul, he's the grandson of uh, Solomon, or Saul, excuse me, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. Now, can you imagine, let's pause for a moment, being Mephibosheth. Band, you guys can come out. I want you to hear this story um, because it's, it's just so important for our text tonight. So Mephibosheth is crippled from a young age. The new dynasty has come in, and here, uh, I don't know if they heard me, it's okay. <laughs> Everybody's looking at the door like. <laughs> and Mephibosheth is summoned. Now, if you're Mephibosheth, you're like, I'm toast. I'm like one of the last people remaining. I can't run away. And you have to imagine where Mephibosheth is at. In this day and age, if you do not have the ability to work the field or to make wages with physical work or fight, you are pretty much out to dry. There's not much that you can do to make money. It would be difficult, almost impossible to marry because you have no way of making income and women could not really work. And so when we put the pieces together, what we can gather is that more than likely, however long it's been, we're going to guess that Mephibosheth at this point is now a young man, maybe in his early 20s, and some time has gone by since this happened. 
and he's crippled and he's a beggar. And people know where he's at because he's a beggar. And maybe he begged on the side of the road and that's how he was making ends meet. Maybe that's how he was able to eat food is by collecting whatever people would be willing to give him. And so he's called before King David. And you have to imagine Mephibosheth in this situation thinks that he's going to be killed. He is technically, as Jonathan's son, the rightful heir to the throne. He is an enemy of King David by the law and uh, by dynasties comparatively. They're enemies. And he does not yet know that David's desire is to honor his good friend Jonathan, who has since passed, the, the father of Mephibosheth. And so Mephibosheth appears before King David and he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. I will restore to you the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant? Mephibosheth said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? And then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belonged to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring him produce, and that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. And now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. And then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord the king commands his servants, so will your servant do. And so Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's own sons. Remember the first time that I read that story? I realized that I am Mephibosheth. That I was an enemy to God. I was separated from him because of my sin. Guilty and condemned, worthy of death. But because of who my father is, I get a seat at the king's table. David Gusick, commenting on this passage, says, David questions, David's questions show a great love because Saul made himself an enemy of David. It was customary in those days that the king of the new dynasty to, would completely massacre anyone connected to the prior dynasty. David went against the principle of revenge and against the principle of self-preservation and asked that he could do for the family what he could do for the family of his enemy. Mephibosheth and David were enemies. But because of who Mephibosheth's father was, he got a seat at the king's table. Friend, tonight, because of who your heavenly father is, though your sin is deserving and you are deserving of death and I am deserving of death, I'm deserving of the fires of hell, I'm deserving of being separated from Jesus Christ forever. Because of who my heavenly father is, I get a seat at the king's table. And I wonder if that reality hits us, if it really hits us tonight, that because of what Jesus has done, I get to be an heir to the throne. I get a seat at the king's table. 
We need to see how dirty and broken we really are. And until we start to see ourselves in light of our sin and the things that we've done, we will never fully understand the greatness, the majesty, the the might of the forgiveness that's been bestowed upon us. Our culture tonight says, put you first. The gospel in Jesus says, die to yourself. Put others first. The gospel is offensive because it challenges everything that sinful man wants. But you and I as believers and as ambassadors for Jesus are called to love when everything in the world says to hate. And that is the call. That is the challenge to Philemon that Paul proposes. That he would love a man that he doesn't need to love. That owes, that he owes nothing to. That is an enemy. And Paul says, Philemon, love him because Christ has loved you first. That is the gospel. And that is why so many scholars would call Philemon a gospel in miniature. Because Romans 5.8 says... Paul writing to the church, while we were still dead in our sin, enemies to God, Christ died for us. It is the greatest love that mankind has ever seen. It is the greatest sacrifice that we've ever known. In 2 Corinthians, Paul writing to the church in Corinth says, in chapter 5, verse 18, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. You have been called to the ministry of reconciling. And so in a culture that wants to hate when at all possible, when looks for division, when at all possible, the call on your life as a Christian tonight is to seek unity in Christ, to bridge the gap. How good of a job are you and I doing of that tonight? Are we intentional in bridging the gap between us and those around us? Or do we look at petty peripheral issues and we let them divide us? Do we gossip and slander and backbite? All the things that Paul warns the New Testament church about. Because in our human nature, we're so prone to do all those things. We are called to forgive. And I'm reminded of the old hymn that says, Man of Sorrows, what a name. For the Son of God who came. Ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Bearing shame and scoffing rude. In my place condemned he stood. He sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Guilty, vile, and helpless, we. Spotless Lamb of God was he. Full atonement, can it be? Hallelujah, what a Savior. For lifted up was he to die. It is finished, was his cry. Now in heaven exalted high. Hallelujah, what a Savior. And so when he comes, our glorious King, all that he's ransomed home he'll bring. And then anew this song we'll sing, Hallelujah, what a Savior. I'm sorry I'm a baby, but you know, 
I have my fair share of struggles. I have my doubts. And this life that we're called to live is tough, right? It's hard to do these things. And I was so convicted as I studied this passage because I know that I have unforgiveness in my heart. And before I came down here tonight, I spent some time and I just sought the Lord and I asked him to forgive me for the times that I've been unforgiving, for the times that I've allowed things to be a foothold for the enemy in my life because I refuse to lay aside my pride. And I think if there's one thing that this study so far has impressed upon my heart is how guilty and vile I am without Jesus. And so my desire tonight is not to coerce you into tears or to convince you of anything, but to just remind you that without Jesus, you and I are nothing. And the message of this book and this letter is to forgive and then forget. And in that moment, Christ can do so much. 